This time I invite Andy Brandt to come up. Andy is a chair of our elder board. Super thankful for his willingness to preach for us this Sunday morning. So let's welcome Andy. Thank you. Thanks, Johnny. Well, it is always a pleasure to have this opportunity to be with you and to preach. Um, as Johnny said, my name is Andy Brandt. I'm an elder here at Calvary uh, and also am a local missionary with Crew. Uh, my wife and I serve uh, on a team here that serves the college campuses uh, of Chicago. So I'm not sure if when, uh, when Pastor Johnny made the preaching schedule and in invited me to, to preach this Sunday, if he had intentionally thought about having one of Calvary's missionaries preach on a Sunday where we were talking about the passage where there was the first missionary commissioning. But uh, I think that was providential, and there's a lot of things about this passage that I, I really enjoyed uh, thinking and we'll discuss here in a little bit. Uh, but you might also remember, if you've been at Calvary for a little while, that back in 2018, we also uh, did a little bit of work with this passage. We had what we called as a church an Antioch process, where as a church we were trying to, to listen to the Lord and discern where he would have us go, both as individuals uh, and as a church, kind of what our church's future was going to be. And one of the main things that came out of that time actually was that our senior pastor at the time was actually called to, to leave Calvary uh, and give full-time leadership to the Center for Pastor Theologians. So perhaps some of you who are superstitious or even just a little bit stitious, might be wondering if we should be tempting the fates by uh, talking about this passage again. As you know, our senior pastor is on sabbatical, and so maybe this isn't a time to, to think about this, but, but let me reassure you on a couple of things. Uh, one, this passage is incredibly important uh, in the storyline of the Bible, so we certainly need to talk about it. And second, I had a chance to have lunch with Pastor Gerald a couple weeks ago. I have no sense that the Holy Spirit is leading him away from us, so... <laughs> Fear not, we can move forward talking about this passage with confidence. Um, but I want to pick back up actually from last week. Uh, there's a couple threads that, that Pastor Johnny was talking about that I want to pick back up. Uh, and this is as it relates to our sermon series, the story of the Bible uh, and the healing of the world. So Pastor Johnny mentioned last week that Acts is more or less organized around its great commission in Acts 1.8. Here Jesus tells the disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then Acts is sort of organized around the gospel kind of moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so our passage is sort of the beginning of the ends of the earth section of Acts. And Pastor Johnny also said last week that if not for the Holy Spirit, we would need to title our sermon series something else. We'd need to title it something like The Story of God and the Demise of the World. And that's exactly right. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no healing. The world would not be healed outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. The mission of God would not be accomplished outside of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church to bring people to Christ. And so I think it's evident from the passage that we read and from really the entire book of Acts that the Holy Spirit is driving forward the mission of God. And so as I was thinking this week about how to describe this sort of tenacious intensity with which the Holy Spirit seems to be driving the gospel to the ends of the earth, the phrase that come to mind, came to mind was to say that the Holy Spirit was hell-bent on this task. But to say the Holy Spirit is hell-bent doesn't seem quite right. So can we change that? Can we say the Holy Spirit is heaven-bent on seeing the gospel spread to the ends of the earth? That feels a little bit safer to me. So we'll go with that, that the Holy Spirit is heaven-bent on seeing the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. So this morning, we're going to look at four ways 
that the Holy Spirit worked in this passage. And in each of those cases, we'll talk about how this heaven-bent Holy Spirit is working in us and through us in similar ways today. So we'll start here. So first, the Holy Spirit works through and responds to worship, prayer, and fasting in the church at Antioch. So this passage points out some of the specific prophets and teachers that they were fasting and praying, but most think that the entire church was involved in this kind of fasting, prayer, and worship service when the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. There is just something about worship, about prayer, and about fasting that God uses to speak to us. Now, this isn't the primary reason that we pursue worshiping the Lord, but it is something that happens. During this time, we are focused on God. We're focused on who he is. We're affirming him as the first thing in our life. And it's out of that posture when God speaks to us. God calls us often when we're in that posture. I've seen this a lot in a particular role I have in, in our ministry with crew. Uh, part of my role is that I give national leadership to our winter conferences. And at these conferences, students have a lot of fun. They hear great teaching from God's word. And they even have a chance to share their faith during a day of outreach. But often, more often than not, in fact, what really leaves a mark on students during these conferences is what God does in their lives during the worship experience. In that environment of worship where there's hundreds of their student peers worshiping the Lord and pursuing him, things happen. The Lord moves. Some students, they confess sin that they've been holding on to for a long time. Some are able to forgive those who have wronged them for the first time. Sometimes unhealthy romantic relationships are put aside. Students come to faith in Christ. And students often receive specific callings to missions or to other significant work. Pastor Gerald recently wrote a paper where he talked about worship as a form of romance. He talks about how when we worship a God, our inhibitions are lowered and we can more easily hear and be directed by the Holy Spirit. And this is a perfect description of what I've seen at so many different worship gatherings. And it's not that we, we don't control the worship, I'm sorry, we don't control the Holy Spirit through the dimming of lights or beautiful music, but prayer, worship, and fasting certainly makes us more open to what the Holy Spirit would tell us. And so the prayer and worshiping life of our church is incredibly important. It's why we're giving so much attention to the hiring of our next worship pastor here at Calvary, and even why we honor the Housers next week for the work that they've done and how God's used them in our worshiping life. And even as we do that, as we pursue our next worship pastor, the, this is such an important area for our church that the elders are committed to praying and fasting each month uh, for the Lord as we pursue that person. We're praying and fasting the first Friday of each month for, for the worshiping life of our church and that the Lord, to ask the Lord that he would bring the right person for this position. And so we invite you to join us. The next first Friday of the month is the first Friday in August. It's a week from Friday. So we encourage you to join us in whatever way makes sense for you. But even as we take next steps in our corporate worshiping life as a church, this is a good time for us to evaluate our personal worshiping life, our personal worship and prayer life. I want to propose a few questions for reflection. And even as I do, this week I just I found myself convicted by these questions and recognizing that this is an area where I need God to work in my life. But here are some, things, some questions to think and pray through. First, are you finding yourself in worship caught up in the majesty of God? 
Are you finding yourself caught up in who he is? Is your focus on him in worshiping leading you to an openness to hear from him? And are there things that are hindering your focus on the Lord in your worshiping life? These are questions I would urge us all to think about and reflect on. All right, the second work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. The Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul to missionary work. The Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this is a significant turning point. It's a significant moment in the story of the Bible. Up until this point, the gospel had its initial kind of bursting forth and spread at Pentecost. And then in Jerusalem, the church was the church and people came to faith. The church was breaking bread together in each other's homes. They were sharing their possessions as the outside world saw and watched. They were sharing their faith in the temple courts. And Acts records how, how daily people were coming to know the Lord. And then it spread beyond Jerusalem as persecution happened and as those Christians in Jerusalem kind of spread out into the surrounding area. And then it spread through some divinely appointed encounters like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and then Peter and Cornelius. But now, now the Holy Spirit is setting apart people to intentionally spread the gospel where it wasn't. Now people are going to be sent. And the Holy Spirit working through missionaries continues to be how the gospel is being spread to the ends of the earth. And some have even made the argument that this is the beginning of a new structure in the church. In his book, Beyond the Local Church, How Apostolic Movements Can Change the World, author Sam Metcalf explains that the church exists in two interdependent and important structures. One is its local and parish form, churches such as Calvary, called the modality, as well as the church in its missional form called the sodality. The sodality or missional, or missional form is made up of second decision people called by God to a specific missional task larger than what a particular church or parish can do on its own. This could be the reaching of all the high school students in a particular region or area, or it could be the equipping of pastors to lead out as theologians. But these structures have existed and continue to exist. We see them in the Catholic church even today where there's local parishes being the modality and then the monastic orders being the sodalities. But what Metcalf proposes is that in Protestantism, these formal structures kind of got thrown out the window during the Reformation, but that because of the need for the sodality, we've seen movements pop up at various short points in church history and even on today. Groups like Pietists and Wesleyans and now World Vision and Pioneers and other mission organizations have popped up. The point is that the Holy Spirit continues to set apart people to do the specific work of missions. And this is why at Calvary, we continue to invest in the work of missions. In the next month or so, we'll commission our newest missionary, Janae Horst. We're excited to do that. And during her commissioning, we'll kind of copy this passage. We'll have people gather around her. Um, the elders, pastors, missions team will lay hands on her and pray for her before she goes off to Germany. One commentary I read on this passage said that kind of the laying of hands during a commissioning isn't so much kind of the impartation of some sort of gift of the Holy Spirit that the missionary doesn't already have, but it's a tangible way of saying, we go with you. Wherever you are going, we are going with you. My wife and I are local missionaries. We got to experience our own commissioning at Calvary several years ago. 
It was an incredibly meaningful time, and I can say that that we-go-with-you feeling hasn't gone away. I remember another time after that, several years, several years ago, sitting at Calvary on a Sunday morning during a particularly difficult season of ministry. And as I looked around, I started feeling overwhelmed with the Lord's goodness to us through the people at Calvary who had gone with us. As I looked around, I saw people who had been on our team of ministry partners for years, supporting us financially and through their prayers. I saw pastors and elders who had intentionally built into us and had, even when I'd asked, taken opportunities to build into my staff team and our students. I saw people who we'd been in small groups with who'd prayed for us and who had carried us through difficult seasons. And there were lots of people who had sent cookies or muffins or brownies with us for the students on our fall retreat as this tangible way of saying, hey, we're going with you, this key, key event in the life of your students and your ministry, we want to go with you, and so we're going to send baked goods to show that. It was overwhelming. And I thought, I hope that all of these people who are going with us know that when the Lord changes the life through our ministry and all the wonderful and miraculous ways that he does that, that they share in that just as much as we do because they have gone with us. And at the time, there was really no way to make sure that you all knew that. But here I am now. <laughs> so I can tell you, we are so thankful for you. And, so, and I think I can speak for all of the missionaries that we're so thankful for how you have gone with us and continue to go with us. Another thing we see here is that the sending of missionaries is often a sacrifice for those who are doing the sending. I'd imagine Rabbi Saul was a pretty great preacher. He was probably a pretty good Sunday school teacher. And I'd imagine the community might take a hit when Barnabas, who's literally named after the fact that he is so encouraging, has to go away. But just as we experienced at Calvary when Pastor Todd was called away to full-time leadership of the Center for Pastor Theologians, the Holy Spirit has a way of taking care of those who in faith send the people that he calls. He has a way of raising up new leaders and growing people to take on new challenges. And I'm sure that the Antioch Church would attest to the fact that in the end, it's a blessing to send when the Holy Spirit calls from among us. Third, the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Barnabas strategically on their missionary journey. So as you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's leading is obvious. If you were to circle every time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts, you'd have quite a few circles. He's leading them certain places, and he forbids them to go to others. Luke mentions often that a speaker is filled with the Holy Spirit before he gives a sermon or a speech. And what he is leading them to do often seems incredibly strategic. Now, you might feel uncomfortable with the use of the word strategic here, and to a certain extent, I share in that discomfort. It can feel like we're overlaying kind of professional or business language on the scripture. And so we need to be cautious with that. But with that said, there are many ways in this chapter alone that we can see the Holy Spirit leading in ways that are incredibly strategic. So let's look at some of those. There's a strategic element in raising up Antioch as the first missionary sending outpost. Its location makes more sense even than Jerusalem, where we might expect people to be sent from. It was a great launching point geographically to get to where the gospel was not. And Antioch also has a diverse leadership team that makes it a church well-suited for cross-cultural evangelism. Several weeks ago in his sermon, Pastor Eric pointed out in this passage and in some of the other passages in Acts, how Luke specifically mentions kind of the ethnic background of some of the leaders of the church of Antioch and in other places. 
And so the church in Antioch, being as diverse as it was, was already dealing with contextualizing the gospel into various cultures. And this skill set that they would have developed at the church would be key to the missionaries sending, that they sent from there. There was also a strategic element in first going to Cyprus. Cyprus was where Barnabas was from. They didn't start by going to some place that wasn't familiar to them. They started by going to a place where Barnabas would have known people. He would have known the culture. And it's as if the Spirit knew that early success might give this initial missionary band the confidence they might need to keep going. This is similar. I'm a big sports fan, and I see this in sports all the time, where a coach will put players in a position to succeed to give them initial confidence. So baseball is one of my favorite sports to watch, and I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. And the Detroit Tigers this year have this rookie named Akil Badu that's become one of our family favorites, some for the way he plays and the success that he has, and also because his name is Akil Badu. And it's really fun when you cheer his name and you say, yeah, Badu, it's like you're doing a front Flintstone thing, and that's just a lot of fun. But in any case, I was recently reading an article where uh, Tigers manager A.J. Hinch talked about how he was initially putting Akil Badu in the lineup and sometimes taking him out of the lineup. So there was, uh, he intentionally put him in the lineup against pitchers where he knew he would have success and kept him out, even though he was probably the best choice the Tigers had at the spot, kept him out from pitchers, he, pitchers where he wouldn't see as much success. The, the reason being that he wanted him to have initial confidence and as his confidence would grow, he would start to put him in more as he is now during some of the tougher pitcher, against some of the tougher pitchers he would face. And you can see the Holy Spirit doing the same sort of thing, giving this missionary band a taste of success so that they can keep going on. There's also a strategic element in going first to the synagogues in whatever city that they went to. For Paul, I think there's a theological reason, too, uh, that he, Paul really believed the gospel was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and wanted to give God's chosen people the first chance to, to respond to the gospel. But there's a practical reason as well. In going to the synagogue first, he was going to try to reach people, the Jews who already knew the scriptures. Also among the Jews there, there would be proselytes, people who were initially from another culture who weren't culturally Jewish, but who had converted to Judaism and would still have some degree of remembering their, the culture they were formed in. And then also god fear, similar to the proselytes who had, were in a similar situation and started to adhere to Judaism, but hadn't gone all the way and been circumcised. So the synagogues were a great place to start, to build up an initial group of people. So in some of my work with crew, we've done some launching of crew on new campuses. We'll go to a campus where there's not already a Christian ministry, and we'll try to find students to start something. And so when we do that, we strategically think and try to find students who have some knowledge of the Bible, who are maybe already believers, and try to build that group of people up so that they can reach out to the rest of the campus. And you can see the same kind of thing happening here, that they go first to the synagogue to build up a base of people to then go out and to reach the Gentiles. There was also a strategic element in the story of, of the winning of the favor of Sergius Paulus. So Sergius Paulus is the proconsul and so he is the person that the Roman government has put in charge of the area. And so there's a Jewish magi magician there named, uh, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who doesn't want to lose the influence that he has over Sergius Paulus. But the Holy Spirit, demonstrating his power in the blinding of Bar-Jesus, made Sergius Paulus open to the word of God. There is debate as to whether he actually became a Christian, but even if he did not, 
What the Spirit did likely won Paul and Barnabas access that they may not have had otherwise at Cyprus. God utilizes influential people for his purposes. And so we shouldn't shy away from trying to reach influential people with the gospel. So when Crew, which used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, was founded back in 1951, 1% of the world's population had a college degree. So the, thankfully it's much higher now. But the ideal was, is that if you could reach the campus today, you could reach the world tomorrow. Because through the campus would come people who would lead and be influencers in our world. And so this kind of strategic thinking certainly can be taken too far. It can lead to a form of elitism or partiality, and we need to avoid that. But the spirit can and does work strategically through people of influence to push the mission forward. None of this is to say that the Holy Spirit works in strategic or predictable ways, always. I don't think predictable is a word that I would use to describe the Holy Spirit. There's certainly, uh, there certainly times the Holy Spirit leads us to do things that at face value don't make any strategic sense. The Holy Spirit moves where the Holy Spirit moves. But we can see him in Acts moving very strategically, and we can assume that the heaven-bent heaven bent Holy Spirit is just as shrewd of a strategist today. Lastly, the Holy Spirit worked through the brokenness and conflict in the relationships of that first missionary team. So Luke tells us in the passage that Barnabas and Paul had an assistant with them on their journey named John Mark. This is the same Mark who would later write the Gospel of Mark. So after they leave Cyprus, he left them and goes back to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't tell us why Mark left. It could be because missionary life was more difficult than he had imagined. It could be that there was an interpersonal conflict among them. It could be that there was a health reason. We don't really know. But later on in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Barnabas decide to go on another missionary journey and revisit the churches that they had established, they have a dispute. Barnabas wants to bring Mark with them again. And Paul does not, because he thinks Mark deserted them on that first journey. So these are two mature Christian men. So there's any number of, of things we'd expect here uh, in order to figure out how to resolve this problem. I would expect maybe that they would pray and fast and seek God about who they should take with them. Well, since peacemaker ministry didn't exist yet, maybe they could kind of gather some elders together who would mediate and who could help them figure out their dispute. Maybe they could even designate a group of wise believers to make an impartial judgment for them since they couldn't do it on their own. None of that is what happened. Luke tells us that there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. This is the same Paul that wrote half of the New Testament, and he writes things like, hey, as long as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. This is the same Barnabas who is literally named because he is so encouraging. This isn't something I like. This is not what I want my scriptures to say. <laughs> I want the scriptures to say something like, as Paul and Barnabas sought the Lord together in prayer, the Holy Spirit gave them unity and wisdom, and they agreed to have Mark join them. Or maybe it'll go the other way and say, they agreed to have Mark sit this one out, and after getting some counseling and extra professional development, join them on the next journey. That's what I want the scriptures to say here. It is not what the scriptures say. And I have a similar discomfort with the current divided state of the church. 
A perusal of Christianity Today magazine or really any social media will tell you right now that Christians are divided. If I were to pick one word to describe the state of the church right now, it might very well be turmoil. We're divided along theological lines. We're divided along political lines. We're often divided along ethnic and racial lines. We're divided even about how we think and talk about race. And in those divisions, kindness and charity are not words that we would use to characterize the interactions over this. It's difficult, and I'm not sure exactly what the Lord is doing in this season, and I hope with retrospect we'll be able to. Sometimes it's enough to make me say, hey, uh, Holy Spirit, are you noticing what's going on here? Are you on Christian Twitter? Uh, You know, you indwell each one of us. Can't you bring about unity in this conflict? You're, as you indwell each one of us, you know, you're uniquely positioned to bring about this unity. This doesn't seem like it's good for the kingdom. Can we, can we do something here about this? And while I'm not exactly sure again what the Holy Spirit is doing, I am comforted. The Bible gives us some hindsight into the conflict between Paul and Barnabas, and it gives us some clues as to how God used, might be using this dispute in the building of his kingdom, and even how he could be potentially at work in our current situation. So Barnabas ends up taking Mark. They separate. Barnabas takes Mark, and they go back to Cyprus, go back through kind of those churches that were established there. Paul takes Silas and goes north and ends up going to a bunch of new places and establishing new churches. So one could argue that more ground got covered, and Silas was given an opportunity to develop as a missionary because of the separation. Additionally, and probably most encouragingly, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul, who's, who's near the end of his life and is uh, writing to, to his dear son Timothy, says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So that's encouraging to me. Mark, who at one point, you know, he was willing to divide with Barnabas over his relationship with Mark. Now at the end of Paul's life, he wants Mark with him. So somewhere along the way, something changed about, changed in Paul's mind about Mark. And I think these relationships were healed. So none of this is to give us any sort of excuse for disunity. We need to pursue unity wholeheartedly. But at the same time, all of this gives me hope that the Holy Spirit is using us, even in our disunified state, to bring healing to the world and that there is hope for God to be glorified as his grace in our current disunity is healed. So I want to close with just a few reminders and a few areas of application. First, the same Holy Spirit driving the gospel to the ends of the earth in Acts is working in and through the church today. He is just as heaven-bent on fulfilling the Great Commission and healing the world now as he was then. And if this is true, my suspicion is that he'll continue to guide us both collectively and individually to be involved in the spread of the gospel. So the question for us to consider is how the Holy Spirit is leading us, again, both collectively and individually, to be involved. Perhaps the first step, as we talked about earlier, is to evaluate your worship, prayer, and fasting life so that you're more open to how the Spirit might be leading you. Perhaps you could become more connected to some of Calvary's missionaries around the globe. If you go out those doors and kind of down the hallway, there's a wall that has prayer cards for all of the different Calvary missionaries. That's a great place to start to get more connected with some of how God is using Calvary's missionaries around the globe. 
You could also, as things start to open up and these opportunities come about, you could take the opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip and see how God might be calling you through that. There may be a strategic way the Holy Spirit would utilize your work for the advancement of the gospel and the healing of the world. And perhaps he is looking to strategically utilize you to reach the people that he has put in your life. Whatever the case may be, I hope that in the coming days you will experience the privilege of seeing the heaven-bent Holy Spirit lead you in powerful ways. I'll invite the worship team back up as I close in prayer. Lord, we stand in awe of the lengths you are willing to go to see this world healed because of your great love and because of your glory. We are honored that you would use us in the healing process as the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. You are worthy of our whole life worship. And we pray that as we continue to live our lives as an act of worship to you, that your spirit would lead us and guide us to what you would call us to do as individuals and as a church toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen.